Hello and welcome to the Boundless Book Club from the Emirates Literature Foundation. You are here with Ahlam, Andrea and me, Annabelle. We have already discussed many great books on this podcast, but how many of those books will people still be reading and talking about in 20 years, 50 years or even 100 years time. Um, This week we have been diving into literature that has stood the test of time and today we'll be talking to you about our favourite classics. And before we get started, do let us know as well if you've got any favourite classics that you want to share with us. You can get in touch with us on social media and also leave a comment beneath the YouTube video as well if you're watching there. I can't wait to see what you've picked out. But first of all, I think it's interesting to look at why we read classics what you consider a classic versus a non-classic in one of the books that i've chosen for today there's actually a quote about what makes a classic book so um it's from well i'll tell you the subject later but the line says (laughs) a classic is a successful book that has survived the reaction of the next period or generation. Then it's safe, like a style in architecture or furniture. It's acquired the picturesque dignity to take the place of its fashion. That's nice. I'm worried about what I've chosen now. <laughs> but it's true. What a, what a, a classic does need to transcend the time it's written, right? That's a, that's a hallmark of a classic. Um, yeah. And I think... Some books are really so much of their now that you couldn't possibly still relate to them in the same way in 10 years time. Yeah, I think when the social aspect of it is really strong, it's you can connect to it no matter where or when you are. Um, the sense of place is, is great when it can take you back to a certain place or take you to um, a situation where you're unfamiliar with. But when the so I feel like when the social construct is, it, it, themes are coming out strong, you can relate to it no matter when you are. And these people who, whose books become classics are genius writers anyway. Yeah. And I think they have to, they do have to be great. Yeah. That you can't write something mediocre that sort of has a great topic. So therefore people read it today. Those are not going to last. Yeah. You need to have the combination of the, the subject matter, mm-hmm. um, the universe universality of the feeling in it and also they have to be really well written I think so I'll I think for me the one that the one that I've stayed away from it's sort of because I think you we tend to stay away from the obvious and if there's a name of an author that comes up too much in your English class or you know is 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 featured in in films and and just very obviously quoted in 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 places I feel like that puts me off a little bit and it's like well that one's too obvious to start with (laughs) and so that's I think the reason why I've resisted that sounds like a really hipster approach (laughs) yeah I mean that's that's also one of the reasons why I've never read a Paolo Coelho book because I feel like it's on every bestseller list like since I was a teenager and I'm like um I'm not sure I feel like if it's that mainstream (laughs) I don't really feel like reading it and Scott Fitzgerald's work is one that I hadn't read by the, by the time the movie Great Gatsby came out. And so I watched the film. And for me, Leonardo DiCaprio's character put me off a little bit. I didn't really enjoy his overacting <laughs> in that role. And I hated when he, the way that he would say old sport. And I, it, just, like, it just put me off Scott Fitzgerald altogether. Oh, what a shame. 
Yeah, but actually, so when I, I picked this book up to read for this podcast, I'm, I'm, I'm quite enjoying it. I think I always also viewed his work as being very fatuated with like a superficial, materialistic, elitist Manhattan or, or whatever city that it's based on lifestyle. And that's what kind of put me off. I always thought that it wouldn't be something that I would enjoy. But actually, like we said earlier, when the writing is that good, it's easy to be just drawn in. So uh, The Beautiful and Damned is the book that I've, I've been resisting, but I, I, I read for today. It's the story of Anthony Patch, who is a young, young, young man who is waiting for his grandfather to pass away to come into his inheritance. And he lives in Manhattan. He has a beautiful Fifth, apart- Fifth Avenue apartment. It's in the early 1920s. And he's just, you know, has the typical socialite living above his means Manhattan lifestyle of those days and is just constantly waiting for his grandfather to pass away. Uh, and then he meets Gloria, who he, he marries. And Gloria is just super beautiful. And that's all that she's really known for throughout the book. It's her beauty. And that's what he's attracted to. And so they get married, but his obsession with his grandfather's will and that whole situation is just not good for their relationship. And it's just downwards from there. So I'm really enjoying it. The, the writing is really beautiful. And the quote was was from, from this book that I read earlier about classic. There's a lot of really super intellectual conversation between the guys who are friends. You kind of feel like you want to be friends with them just so that you can debate <laughs> the same topics. And it's interesting because Anthony is a character who says he's a writer, but he does very little of it. So it's all about appearances and that kind of, you know, appearing to be a certain way. But he has all these insecurities of not having a deeper sense of, you know, substance. But it it makes his character all the more interesting for it, I think. Have you guys read it? I haven't read that one. I've read a few of his other books. And I really, I think he is a phenomenal writer. I think it's a shame about the the movie because everybody says that that was more style over substance and it was mm-hmm. spectacular to look at it really was it a was. beautiful movie yeah but I, I, I feel like you didn't get the best sense of the characters from it no definitely not but i think this is a beginning of a long-term relationship between me and mr fitzgerald so i really enjoy it. i'm really enjoying this so i'm glad i picked it up for for this for this episode and actually i'll tell you the the book that i want to recommend as one of my favorites because they're kind of linked i figured to start with both of these authors are irish <laughs> so scott fitzgerald and oscar wilde uh, although oscar wilde passes away I think when Scott Fitzgerald was about four years old. So there was a tiny bit of overlap between their lives. But the picture of Dorian Gray is one that I've always loved. And in a similar way, the character of Dorian is an orphaned, young, beautiful man who has come into all of this wealth. And there are two characters that are sort of obsessed with his beauty and just really taken by his appearance. So there is Basil, who is a very talented artist and paints this portrait of Dorian Gray to perfection. It becomes his masterpiece. And then there's Lord Henry, who has all these like big opinions and views about life and thinks that, you know, life should be lived through pleasure versus virtue. And Dorian is sort of very influenced by him and goes into really being impacted by the way that he says. And so when the portrait comes out and it's so perfect, Lord Henry tells Dorian that actually, you know, 
it's it, your beauty and youth will fade. And he, he sort of throws a fit and says, no, it can't. I, I, I wish that this painting would age instead of me and I would give my soul for it. And so the book goes into the painting starting to grow grotesque with every sin that Dorian commits and Dorian's appearance remains young and youthful but his ugly behaviors and decisions that he makes in life are sort of portrayed in this painting as he goes on and what I love about the book is that actually two forms of artwork are really key to, to the storyline so there's the painting which is sort of like a mirror of Dorian's soul but then there's also the the yellow book that Lord Henry gives him which just guides him down this path of choosing very superficial, um, temporary pleasures in life over his morals and his virtues and things just spiral downwards because of these choices. And that's sort of a, a link between the two characters in my two books. So Anthony and Dorian kind of have in common, they're very attracted to this pleasurable lifestyle, which is temporary and not always moral or uh, the best life choices. It's hedonism gone insane. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. I absolutely love that book as well. I think that's a fantastic choice. It's it's incredible because again, that's one of those books that's been around for so long. It was written in mm. a completely different world, but it still resonates with everybody today. Yeah. And I do love the fact that, you know, the beauty is that they describe it because usually like it's in, in those days, if you're describing a character as being very beautiful, it's normally a woman that's sort of the subject of that kind of infatuation. And I do love that he took that risk and made it a man. And it's two other men who are really infatuated with his yeah. beauty. And I think it was quite uh, daring of him to do at that time when, you know, that wasn't okay to do. A good test for a classic is how well you can adapt it for modern times as well mm -hmm. and how often we return to the same stories because we were talking the other day about Emma and how that became clueless clueless yeah yes. and I was thinking about all of these great stories and how some of the best ones like 10 things I hate about you is based on the taming of the shrew and um, a lot of my favorite adaptations are basically like often high school dramas that are based on very tense Shakespearean tragedies or plots. But Picture of Dorian Gray is one of those characters where the character of Dorian is so strong and so enigmatic. Mm -hmm. He is the definition of, of evil, I think, in, in some yeah. ways, by the end of it anyway. Yeah. But he's such an enigmatic character that he crops up time and time again in various films. Like there's a new Sabrina the Teenage Witch. He's a character in that series. Like he's not related yeah. to that universe at all, <laughs> but he is such a symbol of corruption yeah. that he, they like to use him in all these different stories. And like, we need a, we need a symbol of evil. Is Dorian. <laughs> Dorian. <laughs> yeah, it's true. There's so many good film adaptations right now. I watch High Fidelity, uh, which Zoe Kravitz oh. plays. I love that one. Did you see it? I haven't seen it, but you know, I um, one of my favorite quotes about books is from that movie. It's when he's talking and he's saying, yeah, I've read, I've read The Unbearable Likeness of Being. It's about a girl, isn't it? Yeah, honestly, yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. best quote ever, and it just shows that all the people you can read all the intellectual books in the world. If you don't get it, it doesn't really matter. It's what you take from them, right? Yeah, um, true. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And there's high, uh, normal people has also just been adapted into a BBC series. I don't know if you guys have seen it. I'm watching it right now. It's brilliant. It's so so good. That's what I hear. I just finished reading it, and I'm still slightly confused. <laughs> So yeah, the classic that I have chosen today is The English Patient 
by Michael Ondaatje. Um, it won the Booker Prize with another book. It was a joint winner in 1992. And then I think a couple of years ago, it won something called the Golden Booker Prize. So after 50 years of one of the biggest prizes in the English uh, language, it's been voted the best of like 50 years of the best. And it's beloved, I think, also because it was adapted to a great film starring Rafe Fiennes as well. But I read the book because I had to a couple of years ago. And it's, if I hadn't been forced to read it, I don't think I would necessarily have picked it up or persevered with it to the end. And I think it's an interesting part of the classics conversation that a lot of the books that we are talking about today are actually quite slow paced in comparison to a lot of kind of modern contemporary fiction and there's a tendency to say now and I say it all the time like if you're not enjoying something if it's not grabbing you from the first 50 or 100 pages just put it down but I'd like to completely contradict everything that I've said before and say that there are some books like the ones we're talking about today that really reward patient slow considered reading and I've been thinking about that a lot more now since lockdown and the state of the world at the moment and I think a lot of people have been turning to classics that they just haven't had the time to to read before because they have longer stretches of time where they can kind of consider books the English patient isn't really a book that I think you can dip in and out of and um, one of the things that I love about it so much is it actually does reflect what we're going through at the moment so it's got these four characters they're stuck in a villa in World War two together for a long period of time you've got the english patient is he english no one knows they just assume who's a burn victim he was in a plane crash you've got his nurse a canadian woman called hannah you've got a sikh sapper called kip who specializes in bomb uh, and ordnance disposal and you've got a thief called caravaggio which is a great name for a thief and they're all stuck together and it's about their relationships in the villa and it flashes back to the english patient's backstory um, and him working as an explorer in the North African desert during the Second World War and also being part of the what's it called a member of a British cartography group is what he's described as the way the desert is described in the landscape and then the way it goes back to this small villa in Italy in the middle of the war that's been shattered by bombs just the contrast between that constrained atmosphere and then the breadth of the desert it's it's just incredible he talks about all of these really big themes in a book that is actually if you look at it less than 300 pages one of my favorite quotes that I want to share with you is about the desert the desert could not be claimed or owned it was a piece of cloth carried by winds never held down by stones and given a hundred shifting names before Canterbury existed long before battles and treaties quilted Europe in the east all of us even those with European homes and children in the distance wished to remove the clothing of our countries it was a place of faith we disappeared into landscape the the whole book is, wow. is written like that and there are bits of it that I really don't understand and I never will and I wanted to skip past at the time but if I had I wouldn't have found those other passages and I don't like rereading books but this is one book that rewards and other people have said this that rewards rereading because every time you read it you find a new layer of meaning or a, a new angle to the character. I love that I love the passage that you chose as well it's really really beautiful. The one that I've resisted however is anything else by Dickens because I persisted and I'm glad that I did with Great Expectations and Dombey and Son which is no joke it's about that thick um, when I was at university because it was on a, an assigned reading list but though I'm glad to have read them I'm not going to pick up a Dickens book for fun. I can appreciate him fine but I'm not going to pick it up for 
enjoyment. And I'm slightly conflicted about that because I'm sure there's a lot that I could possibly learn from more Dickens novels. But mm. my main issue with him is that when his books were released, they were released in a serial format and he was paid by the word. And it feels at times that it shows. <laughs> he kept going. <laughs> <laughs> and I just wish... He kept going it, for the money. Yeah, it could have, <laughs> could have been edited slightly. And The English Patient is one of those books where it's it's less than 300 pages and yet he manages to convey everything so succinctly and so beautifully. It's funny you, I, I got a, oops, sorry. I got a gift yesterday, this notebook, which has a Dickens quote on it. <laughs> you have been in every line I've ever read. Oh, lovely. It's so beautiful. And the notebook actually, so, so all the lines of the notebook are the entire book written in tiny text. Oh my goodness. <laughs> It's amazing. Yeah. I almost feel bad writing too close to the words. Like I write somewhere yeah. in between the two lines. <laughs> so I'm not like destroying the writing. <laughs> but it's a gorgeous, gorgeous book. I'm so, com- I'm so conflicted about Dickens though. Because it's like, if I, read, if I read a random quote by a lot of these authors, I'm like, wow, you know, you're incredible. And yeah. I, I feel stupid. I honestly, I feel stupid me saying, oh, I don't like Dickens. Well, he's clearly a lot cleverer than I am and wrote amazing things that I will never write. And a lot of people, I'm pretty sure when you say you don't like certain classic texts, like, oh, you just don't understand it or you're a Philistine. Um, <laughs> and, and I, but it's and not, I get I mean, that. You're not <laughs> denying their talent, right? You're not actually no. denying their talent. You're no. just saying it's, it's kind of like if, you know, it, it's like singers, some, some singers, I mean, have the most powerful voices. If, but if that person's voice doesn't resonate with you or doesn't like make you feel good you're not going to enjoy it It, it, you're not denying their vocal talents in any way it's just got to sit with you sort of and and we all have our very like different views of what we enjoy and and you know that's what makes it so cool that the three of us have very different tastes in literature and we kind of love or disagree on 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 very different pieces of work linking back to what you were talking about earlier because i've got for my one of my favorite classics so hard to choose one by the way so but one of my favorite is evelyn bull vile bodies which is a um, a satire from the sort of 1920s london and i did not know this until today actually but apparently it was made into a movie and Stephen Fry was the director, and he said, this is Britain's version of Great, Sc- Great Gatsby. So um, oh. I think that's probably quite appropriate. I'd like to go and look up the movie now, because I didn't know that it, it was ever made. It's a satire of the Bright Young Things partying in Mayfair, and Bright Young Things is how he describes the, pe- the main characters in this book. They're all upper crust, shallow, hedonistic, young people after the war only concerned with chasing the next party and chasing their desires effectively. But like all great satires, it's actually, there's a really strong hint of the abyss behind the glitzy parties, which is what makes it really appealing because it's not just light and and, uh, glitzy throughout. And as Evelyn was writing this book, his wife, who was also called Evelyn, left him for another man who was another bright young thing, possibly brighter than him. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that is mirrored in, in, in the novel, actually. But also he, Evelyn himself felt like there were two parts to this novel. So the first bit, which is quite light 
and funny because it's satire. And then the second part where after his wife has left him, it becomes much, much darker. But when you read it as a reader, not knowing that you don't notice it, it just seems really coherently mm. moving gradually towards the, the dark finish line. Mm. Um, and it's, it's, it's a phenomenal piece of work and it's satire. So it is funny. It has some really funny moments, funny scenes, but there's quite a, a heavy load of despair in it as well. The central premise, it's there's a, an, a writer in the book called Adam who wants to marry Nina, but he has, doesn't have enough money. So <laughs> he has to finish this novel he's working on and sell it. But then the novel is confiscated because of, I think they say it's too obscene, so he can't sell it. So then he wins some modern horse that he gives to someone and goes missing. So it's, all, it's, a, it's a marriage plot turned on its head. And then Nina says to him, why don't you go and speak to my father and ask him for money? So he mm. goes off to find Nina's father to ask for money. But while he's off doing that, Nina meets another young, bright young thing and says, actually, I'm going to marry this guy instead. Rude. So there are a lot of parallels between his real life. Yes. Yeah, a bit. And that's, that's effectively the, the story. There, there's lots of, lots of other things going on, lots of parties, lots of disasters, lots of confusions and some really dark, dark moments that are quite fun as well. And just if you like that, here's a little bonus recommendation. I've got Molly Keane as well, Good Behaviour, which is very similar in the sense that it's also a satire about the upper crust and it's bitingly funny. I think if you like one, you'll like the other. And then for the book that I have been resisting, I'm not going to talk very much about it because other people have spoken about it enough, I think. It's Moby Dick. <laughs> Moby Dick, it's a story about a whale, a man who wants to go and get a whale for 600 pages. <laughs> Can I say this, this is also another one that American TV shows are very obsessed with and tend to talk about in every, every like school scene or... <laughs> I know it's supposed to be supposed to be amazing. I'm sure it is. But you know, <laughs> it's a whale hunt. I tried as well. I tried on I tried it on audio, but I just couldn't continue. I couldn't get into it. I don't know if it was it was the actual content of the book or if it was the voice of, of the actor. Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel like you written you need to really be interested in nautical descriptions for that to work for you, maybe. <laughs> So I, I wanted to also mention, it's not a book that I resisted reading. It was a book that I had to read and I was really looking forward to reading. And it's Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson. And it was at the time when I'd been recommended all of these Dickens novels. And I was like, oh, okay, at least I've got Treasure Island now, you know, to look forward to. It's exactly the sort of thing that I should like. It's about pirates and adventure and islands and all sorts of things like that. And I love the ocean. This should be perfect for me. And it was one of the dullest books I have ever <laughs> had the misfortune to read. And I'm really sorry to any Treasure Island fans, but, you know, give me the Muppet version any day. <laughs> I, I, just, I just couldn't. And I was heartbroken as well. And I think the, thing, the moment, I still remember it, the moment where I decided this book is not for me. This is the point where I hate you was a <laughs> double page spread and I looked at it you know when you can tell what's on the page before you've even read you're like there's no dialogue here okay um it will just be description it wasn't just description it was just description 
of exactly what was happening in terms of the direction of the jib um, and the sailing <laughs> motions. It's like, I don't know what you're saying. I could research this, but for somebody with no spatial awareness, this is maddening. And I'm just, I'm just going to skip you. <laughs> That's fine if the next page is going to be about something other than the gym. That's the thing. There are some books where you're like, that part I could have done without. Like The Bridge of Clay was one for me where, where it was like, I loved the storyline and everything. Although it was a little bit slow, I, you, you still got pulled through because there was like, you needed to know what happens next. But there's this entire part about horse races where I was like, okay, I could have done without, <laughs> without those like 20 or 30 pages and then gone back into the storyline. You can, you can easily just pull it out. <laughs> Andrea, you would have loved that though, no? I know. Oh, yeah, I would have completely. Yeah. That's exactly why the English patient isn't my favorite because there were bits where I felt like it was just, I'm not really understanding this, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't persevere with some books. And I think part mm -hmm. of figuring out what remains on your bookshelf and what you kind of give away to family and friends instead is the ones that are skippable, but the other bits are redeeming enough for you to keep and that's the thing I'm so in love with parts of the English patient and so annoyed and frustrated in the same way I was by those those sailing descriptions in Treasure Island with other bits of yeah. the English patient that it doesn't matter because I'm in love with the other parts too much mm -hmm. to ever really you're gonna come back up. to them at some point yeah. and just go through them again it's like one of those relation love-hate relationships you know you fall yeah. in love with them something <laughs> awful and you're like I'm never gonna love you again and then they make you fall in love it's a bit a little bit of a toxic relationship with that book <laughs> there we go what do you think? What is the greatest classic of all time? We would love to know what you think. Do you pick up classics to read from time to time or do you prefer modern literature? Let us know by emailing comms at emmerslitfest.com or send us a message on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and also on YouTube. Don't forget to hit subscribe and give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. This has been the Boundless Book Club, the classics episode. Thank you for listening. Thank you.